The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. It was in February of 2014 that a woman named Jessie Golem wrote an article for the Huffington Post, and the headline of the article immediately caught my attention. The title of the article was, I was a hardcore Christian, but this is why I lost my faith. And in the article, she chronicles a number of experiences that she had that led to her abandoning her faith in Christ altogether. And some of the, the things that she mentions, one of them was um, an occasion where she attended church on Easter Sunday, and she says, um, and this is in your notes, we were at one church over the Easter weekend, and minutes before the service had started, for Easter Sunday, two pastors had been screaming at each other and threatening to quit. Happy Easter. She also speaks about around that time being invited to visit a friend up in Vancouver, Canada, and she accepted the invitation to visit that friend. And tragically, while she was there, she was ex uh, sexually assaulted by this person that she had trusted. She was left feeling dirty and blaming herself for the sexual assault, and she describes her feelings in her article in the Huffington Post. And for a long time afterwards, she was afraid to open up to anyone about what had happened to her. But eventually, she summoned the courage to open up to a Christian friend and share with them what had happened. But sadly, once she shared with this Christian friend about what had happened to her, the friend, she says, reacted in a way that made me feel even more wretched about myself. After the sexual assault, Jessie Golem found herself asking the question, where was God when she was being sexually assaulted? She didn't like the answers that were presenting themselves to her. And she says, and you see this on your notes, God, was, God either was present and there and did nothing about it, or God was not there and does not exist. Those were Jesse's two choices, and she made her pick. She says, it is easier for me to think that God does not exist than to think that God was present and did nothing. This is where I stopped believing in God. I would rather think that God simply does not exist than think that God abandoned me. I share Jesse Golem's story with you at the outset uh, this evening to alert you to the fact that many of those that we call prodigals are, at least in some instances, people who have been sinned against and have experienced deep hurts. They've had an experience of deep pain in their life that has left them feeling abandoned by God. Some of them have had a spiritual leader that they should have been able to trust who has let them down. Some of them find themselves in circumstances that have turned out in such a way that they just can't seem to square what they once believed about God with what their circumstances are. Some of them have seen someone that they love 
suffer horribly and they just can't reconcile the suffering of their loved one with the belief in a loving and all-powerful God. For some of them, their biggest religious disappointment is themselves. And I've talked to many such individuals as a pastor over the last 26 years. They made a profession of faith in Christ and they had high hopes for transformation going into that. Yet their faith in God did not change them like they thought that it might. So they eventually gave up on God and just went back to being who they were before. Some of the people that we call prodigals are hurting people. And they could benefit from a friend or from a counselor uh, who is willing to pursue them and to nurture them back to faith in Jesus Christ uh, in a way that is filled, I think, like with the grace and with the truth of Christ himself. And I know that's why you guys are here, because you want to be able to do that. And so the question is, what would such a pursuing, grace-filled, truth-filled ministry look like? And do we have an example of such a ministry in the New Testament? And fortunately, uh, we have a detailed account of such pursuit and such ministry in Luke chapter uh, 24 of Jesus uh, literally pursuing uh, some early stage prodigals. We can call them ESPs, <laughs> early stage uh, prodigals and literally resurrecting their shattered faith. And we see that in Luke 24. Everything I just described in the last few minutes that explains why some people go prodigal is actually what happened to Christ's most devoted followers on the Friday and the Saturday of the Passion Week. They had believed in Jesus and had messianic expectations of him, so their hopes in him were extremely high. Uh, but Jesus disappointed their faith and allowed himself to get crucified and killed. That's a disappointment. They had figured that the spiritual leaders in Israel would eventually come around to accepting Jesus as the Messiah, but it was these very spiritual leaders, it was these very pastors who punched Jesus and screamed for his crucifixion, and essentially they murdered him in cold blood. Imagine having to process that. On top of that, Christ's followers, no doubt, thought that they had grown a lot spiritually over the course of the three years that they had been with Jesus, yet they became cowards and they abandoned Jesus in his moment of deepest need. And now I'm sure that Peter and the other disciples who abandoned Jesus are thinking to themselves after Christ was crucified, I'm the same old mess that I always was. I've been with Jesus for three years and I've obviously never changed at all. In fact, I think I've just committed my worst sin. So I'm not just not going forward and transforming the way I thought, but I'm worse than I ever was even before. And on top of all of that, the one thing that Jesus' followers did know is that Jesus was good and that he was especially approved by God and favored by God, and yet while Jesus was on the cross, even Jesus cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned 
me. So think about that. I mean, when Jesus was on the cross, he asked Jesse Gollum's question. And he asked the question that his followers were asking on Friday night and through the length of Saturday and through the first part of the first Easter Sunday. In fact, during this time period, between the cross and late Sunday, most of Christ's followers could have written an article entitled, I was a hardcore Christian, but this is why I lost my faith. But as dawn broke on that first Easter Sunday morning, God raised Jesus from the dead, and loving Messiah that Jesus is, the very first thing he does is he sets about to pursuing his disheartened followers and seeks to resurrect their shattered faith. And it's going to take a lot to get them to believe again, but Jesus accomplishes this feat with sensitivity and with patience and his finesse in dealing with these shattered followers of him is just beautiful to behold. In fact, I love Jesus. I love him for many reasons. I love him because he died for my sins and delivered me from the hell that I deserve. I love him because he was raised from the dead. And I also love him because of the way he pursued his shattered followers throughout the length of that first Easter Sunday, and that's what I want to just put before you. I mean, what better example for us as counselors to look at than just Jesus? Let's just behold him and what he does to resurrect the shattered faith of his followers. Um, And we'll just try to learn some lessons from his example as we go along in this workshop. So basically, as you look at your notes, we'll just observe seven acts of Jesus to resurrect the shattered faith of those who had lost hope in him. And some of these we'll look at more quickly than others. But the first thing that he does is he presents them with an empty tomb. He presents them with an empty tomb. And we'll look at this very briefly. As the narrative opens in Luke 24, there's some women that are coming to the tomb of Jesus on the Sunday morning after his death. And in verse one, look at what the text says. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. So the fact that they're bringing spices to the tomb of Jesus tells us that they're not expecting a resurrection, right? They're expecting to find a corpse in the tomb, and they're going to use the spices to prepare his body for a very long internment in the tomb. That's how they were expecting things to go. But to their surprise, look at what happens in verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So how do they respond? Do they instantly believe? Do they say, whoa, this is the first Easter Sunday, and henceforth we will call this Easter Sunday? No. In verse 4, it says they were perplexed about this. And the Greek for the word perplexed is they were literally without a way of processing and understanding why in the world the tomb of Jesus would be empty. So to help them in their perplexity, Jesus does a second thing to resurrect the shattered faith of those who had lost hope in him, and that's number two. He provides them angelic messengers announcing his resurrection. He provides them angelic messengers announcing his resurrection. I mean, would that help you? 
If you're devastated and without hope and angels show up to give you perspective, would that be helpful? If there's a prodigal in your life who is running away from the Lord, they've gone wayward, their faith has been shattered by some hardship, would, would you not be blessed if God sent an angel to them and spoke to them and gave them perspective? Well, that's what Jesus does to these disheartened followers who had lost hope in him. Verse 4, while they, the women, were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. We know from later in the chapter that these are angels. They're called angels. And the big giveaway is their dazzling clothing, which literally reads lightning clothing. So they're wearing some serious bling here. Um, And the sight of these angels that are in lightning clothing clothing leaves the women frightened. But look at what happens in verse 5. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men, the angels, said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. And that's the truth bomb that they drop on these women. The tomb is empty because Christ is not in the tomb And he's not in the tomb because he's been raised from the dead. That's the truth that is declared to these women. So Christ has provided these ladies an empty tomb. And on top of that, he's provided them with angels, announcing to them that Christ has been raised from the dead. But there's another thing that he provides for them to resurrect the shattered faith of those who had lost hope in him. Number three he reminds them of his prior predictions of his suffering and resurrection. Look at verse 6. As the angels continue talking, they say, Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they, the women, remembered his words. If you read the gospel accounts, you see that Jesus repeatedly was telling his followers, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And he was telling them not just that these things would happen, but that they must happen in God's sovereign plan. And the angels here are reminding these ladies of these things that Jesus had repeatedly foretold. And the women are now thinking, that's right. Like they're remembering. And verse 8 tells us they remembered his words. So look at what these women do beginning in verse 9. And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest who were all apparently assembled together. Who were these women? Verse 10, now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles and to everyone that was gathered together. So they leave the tomb. They go to these men and tell them what had happened. They tell them about the empty tomb and about the angels and lightning clothes who were at the tomb and who announced that Christ had been raised from the dead. And These women would have told the men who were assembled about how the angels reminded them that Jesus repeatedly said that this would happen, foretelling his suffering, death, and resurrection. So these men are now hearing this, and how do they respond? 
Is their faith immediately restored? No, look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. The Greek word translated nonsense speaks of the ravings of a crazy person. This means that the disciples are not just thinking that these women are mistaken, they're thinking these ladies are crazy. And the imperfect tense of the verb here, of the verb believe, indicates that they are persistently refusing to believe what the ladies are telling them in spite of the women's repeated efforts to persuade them of the truth of what they had experienced. These women are speaking truth, gospel truth to these men, and they're rejecting the truth that's being spoken to them. At some point though, probably after the women had left, Peter, being a man, starts thinking to himself, you know, we probably should go to the tomb and check out what happened there. If something at the tomb made these women crazy, we should at least go to the tomb and find out what made them crazy. So look at verse 12. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, believing, no, marveling at what had happened. Literally, the text reads, he went away to his home, wondering to himself what had happened. So he doesn't believe the resurrection has happened yet, but he is puzzling with amazement over what possibly could have happened that left the tomb of Jesus empty. So up to this point, Christ has provided his followers with an empty tomb, angelic messengers announcing that he's been raised. He's reminded them of his repeated predictions regarding the necessity of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Yet the disciples' faith in him is still not yet revived. They're still not convinced that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So Christ does yet another thing as a part of the process of resurrecting the shattered faith of those who had lost hope in him. And this, to me, is the most touching of all. Number four, he listens to their story of shattered faith. He listens to their story of shattered faith. Look at what happens in verse 13. And behold, two of them. And what do they mean by two of them? Two of the men who were refusing to believe the women's story were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So these two men, they've heard what the women have said, and... They're leaving Jerusalem and they're heading back to Emmaus because as far as they are concerned, there's no reason to be in Jerusalem. There's nothing of any significance that's going to happen. And as they're walking to Emmaus in their state of unbelief and shattered faith, observe what they're talking about in verse 4. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. In other words, they're talking about Christ's death and suffering and their sorrow over that. They're talking about what the women had reported to them about the empty tomb and the angels at the tomb. And then look at what happens in verse 15. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. So they're walking away from Jerusalem in a state of unbelief 
and Jesus travels with them. I've often said to my wife, if you ever leave me, I'm going with you. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is doing here to these disciples. They're, they're leaving Jerusalem, heading home to Emmaus in a state of unbelief, and Jesus is like, I'm going to walk with them. Verse 16, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, what things? This is so amazing to me. If you have someone in your life that has experienced deep religious disappointment, guess who's interested in their story? Jesus is. Just as he's interested in the story of these men. He doesn't have to do this, but he does. He could have said, guys, no one cares about your story of shattered faith. Guys, it's me. He could have skipped this step but he doesn't. He already knows their story and he has all the answers that they need, but he still wants to hear their story first. So he starts walking with them. He asks them what they're talking about in verse 17 and he asks them again in verse 19, what things are you guys talking about? Sometimes, guys, some prodigals have a story to tell. And they need someone willing to travel with them and ask them questions and listen. And when, they, when you ask the first time and they blow you off, ask again, which is what Jesus does. And yes, the prodigals, those that have had a shattered faith, a disappointing religious experience, and they're kind of walking away from the Lord and going wayward. Uh, yeah, they need answers and they need truth. But sometimes they benefit from hearing that truth being spoken to them by someone who's willing to walk with them and listen to their story. So Jesus says, what things? He's trying to draw them out. Look at their reply, verse 19. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was, underline that word was, a prophet mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priest, our pastors and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. So what they're doing is they're unfolding the story of wrongs done by men that they should have been able to trust. It's a story not just of the death of Jesus, but of their own hearts being shattered by what happened to this most precious loved one in their life leaving them with no hope left. In fact, look at what they say in verse 21, but we were hoping. That's past tense. We're not hoping anymore. We've lost hope, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came to us saying 
that they also had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. You might want to mark that word saying. These men are not convinced that the women actually saw any angels. All they're willing to say is that the women came saying that they had seen a vision of angels. These men are in a pretty cynical place right now. Look at verse 24, which explains why they at least accept the fact that the tomb is empty. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And that's the end of the story that they tell. And that's why they're standing there looking sad. That's why they're walking home to Emmaus rather than sticking around in Jerusalem. That's why they were, past tense, hoping that Jesus would redeem Israel, but they're not hoping that anymore. Basically, the title of what they just said to Jesus is, we were once hardcore Christians, but this is why we lost our faith. And Jesus patiently listens to their story of heartbreak and disappointment. This is the resurrected Lord of the universe standing there listening to their story of heartbreak and shattered faith. It's then that Jesus does another thing to resurrect the shattered faith of those who had lost hope in him. Number five, he explains to them the scriptures and what they reveal about him. He explains to them the scriptures and what they reveal about him. It's so fascinating to me that Jesus does this before he physically reveals himself to them. Look at his reply to the story that these men tell him. Verse 25, and he said to them, O oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. On the surface, what Jesus says here seems harsh, right? Uh, but two things basically are happening. First of all, Jesus is speaking hard truth to these men that they needed to hear about themselves because that's the kind of friend that Jesus is to the wayward. He listens and he draws out and he sympathizes, but he also speaks truth about us. He doesn't let us play the victim card and give us only sympathy. He gives us tough talk too, and he speaks truth to us and tells us that a part of the problem is actually with us. And we need to do the same for those wayward souls that we minister to. Dave Harvey uses the expression of uh, love that has teeth with the wayward, and Jesus' love has teeth here. Secondly, Jesus is actually alerting these two men to the good news that God is up to something that is far grander than what these men could have imagined because these men have just been too slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They just believed the parts of the Bible that they wanted to believe and they ignored the other parts. And so they missed the grander picture of what God was up to. And that's why their faith in Jesus was disappointed because what they were believing in was too small when in fact God was actually up to something way bigger. He continues in verse 26, was it not necessary for 
the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. There's the language of necessity again regarding both his suffering and his resurrection. It was necessary that I suffer, necessary that I enter into my glory. And please understand, guys, like Jesus has to do more in this moment than just convince his followers that he's been raised from the dead. He's got to do more than that. He also needs to help them to understand his suffering and their own suffering that they have experienced in witnessing their most precious loved one going through what he has gone through. Imagine how traumatic that would be. This has been a few days of horrible emotional suffering for these men that Jesus is speaking to here. And Jesus needs to help them to see not just that he's been raised, but that his suffering and their suffering was a part of God's plan and that his resurrection was a part of God's plan. So to show them this, look at what he does in verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So he's going to make sure that they don't just skip parts. He's going to work through all the scriptures and help them to see what the Old Testament scriptures reveal about himself. So he's taken them to passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and so forth. But the point I want to make, guys, is Jesus is talking to hurting souls. And what's he do? He takes them to the scriptures. There are people nowadays who say, man, don't do that. As a counselor, don't do that. In fact, I have a quote in your notes that I was reluctant to put in your notes. Um, Ryan Meeks is a pastor of Eastlake Community Church in Washington State. Over a little over a year ago, he went public saying that there are many things in the Bible that I disagree with. This is a pastor. And for example, he, he disagrees with the Bible's teaching against homosexuality. And in an interview last year, he said this, and look at the quote in your notes. If we need to consult an ancient book to know what to do when a human being is in front of us, I think we're screwed already. Pardon his French. And I, I just think, man, too bad Jesus didn't have the benefit of Ryan Meek's wisdom as he's dealing with these men here. Jesus has two brokenhearted men standing in front of him who just told him the story of how their faith and their hope was shattered and not knowing any better, what does Jesus do? He takes them to an ancient book, the scriptures, and he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He walks them from Genesis to Malachi, shows these men how those ancient scriptures pointed to Jesus and to his coming and to his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, and how all of that was a necessary part of God's grand plan of redemption. Jesus takes these wounded and shattered men to the Bible and conducts a Bible study with them. And don't let anyone convince you that taking hurting people to the Bible is a bad thing to do. I, again, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus didn't respond to these two men right away by just saying, hey, guys, it's me. I think that's what I would have done. 
But instead, he first takes them to the scriptures and does some spade work in their heart. And it's only after he does that that he decides to reveal himself to them. And this leads us to the sixth thing that Jesus does to resurrect the shattered faith of those who had lost hope in him. Number six, he makes three personal, very personal appearances to them. There's three personal appearances of Jesus in this chapter, and the first of those is to these two disciples. Look at what happens in verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. This is the risen Lord of heaven and earth. And here he is engaging in these social courtesies with these men, giving them the opportunity to invite him to stay in their home with him. And what happens next is interesting. These men had just had a seven-mile walk, and it's getting toward evening. Their first priority is to recline at the table and have something to eat. So they pull out some stuff to eat, set it on the table, and then the two of them recline at the table. They invite Jesus to join them as their guest. But then look at what happens, verse 30. And when he, Jesus, had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Imagine having a guest in your home, and when you all sit down at the table, your guest says, okay, let's pray. And it's your guest that prays. And then your guest grabs the food and starts serving everybody as if he's the host. That's what Jesus does. And something about how he blessed the bread. They had heard him do that before. And something about how he broke the bread and gave it to them. They had experienced that before. Awakened in them the realization of who this one was at their table And right at this moment, a miracle occurs in the eyes of these men. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And right as they recognized him, look at what happens. And he vanished from their sight. I love this about Jesus. He's the resurrected Lord with the power of heaven and earth at his disposal. And how does he choose to reveal himself to these men? He chooses to reveal himself to them through a prayer of blessing and in the way he gives them bread. That's amazing to me. I mean, if I were the resurrected Lord, I'd be doing a laser show in the sky. I'd be smiting my enemies. I would be doing much grander things to show everyone who I am and that I've been raised from the dead. Yet Jesus chooses to reveal himself to these men by praying a little prayer and giving bread to these weary travelers in their own home. It might be that someone who is wayward and not believing right now, whose faith has been shattered, it might be that they may recognize Jesus too, not through your sophisticated apologetic arguments, but through some humble act of service that you may render to them. And now with Jesus having vanished from their sight, these two disciples are left sitting at their table 
with their jaws hanging open, and they say something that none of us would have expected them to say. Verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? It's amazing to me that this is the first thing out of their mouth. They're not lit up about the fact that they just saw Christ at their table. They're lit up about how they saw Christ in the scriptures when they were on the road and Jesus was conducting a Bible study with them. And guys, that's the blessing we all have to this day as we get to behold Christ in the scriptures. That's the blessing we can offer to anyone who's lost hope. We can open the scriptures together with them so that they can behold Christ in the scriptures and have the wonderful experience that was the most exciting thing in the hearts of these two men in Emmaus. But now Jesus has vanished and the burning hearts of these men dictate that they return to Jerusalem right away. So look at what they do, verse 33. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They just made a seven mile hike, largely downhill to Emmaus. And now they're making the largely uphill seven mile hike back to Jerusalem. Um, I have a Fitbit and so like for me, to Emmaus and back, just that, if that's all they did, that's 28,000 steps that they're taking. And it's largely uphill from Emmaus back to Jerusalem, but that doesn't hinder them at all. Think about what kind of mood you'd be in after walking seven miles. But they're like, we got to get back to Jerusalem. And so that very hour, they return to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem a couple hours later, Look at what happens next. And this brings us to the second appearance of Jesus to Simon Peter. Verse 33 says, And they found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. And no doubt these two disciples burst into the room saying, Guys, we got an amazing story to tell you. But before they can speak, the eleven and those who were with them say, You're not going to believe what happened to us. So the 11 and the others speak to these two men, verse 34, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon, Simon Peter. And by the way, you want to talk about a man who went astray. How about Peter, who three times denied that he even knew Christ and even swore an oath that he did not know him and even cursed, spoke a curse against himself if he was lying when he said, I don't know this man. Yet Jesus pursues him and makes a personal appearance to Peter. And then the two men respond in verse 35. It says, and they, the two men, began to relate their experiences on the road and how Jesus was recognized by them and the breaking of the bread. They're like, we, it was him, and we know it was him. Well, how do you know it was him? Well, the way he broke the bread. That's, that's when we discovered that it was him. And among the things they would have recounted would have been how Jesus walked with them through the Old Testament scriptures and explained the things concerning himself from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And as these two disciples are saying all of these things to those who were gathered together the minds of the 11 and all those who were assembled there are being expanded and categories are, 
are now being created in their minds to ready them for Christ to make an appearance to all of them together. And that's exactly what Jesus does, which leads us to the third appearance of Jesus to all of his disciples. Look at what happens in verse 36. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. Peace be to you, Jesus says. And everyone in the room experiences anything but peace when they see him. Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. This means, guys, that they're still not fully believing that Jesus has been raised, even though he's standing right in front of them. They think they're merely looking at his spirit. They're startled and frightened. They're filled with doubts even still. We know this because of what Jesus does in verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, which bore the scars of his crucifixion, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And he lets them handle him. And at this point, we would think that these disciples would have every reason to now fully believe the truth. They have an empty tomb, angelic messengers announcing Christ's resurrection, reminders of Christ's repeated predictions of his death and resurrection, Old Testament prophecies predicting his death and suffering and resurrection, and now three certifiable personal appearances of Jesus. And during this third appearance, they're actually allowed to touch Jesus and handle him for the purposes of verification. How do they respond to all of that? Look at verse 41. They still could not believe it. And you know why they couldn't believe? Because when your faith has been burned, like theirs was, it's hard to let yourself believe again. Verse 41 tells us that they still could not believe it because of their joy. In other words, they're starting to believe and feel joy, but the joy frightens them. They're afraid to let themselves feel this joy for fear that it might get disappointed and crushed again. They felt joy before, and that got crushed, and now they're feeling joy again, the beginnings of that, and they're afraid for fear that their joy will be crushed again, and they cannot handle another disappointment. The text also says in verse 41, they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. Their thought is, you know, we see Jesus standing in front of us. We're touching him. But how can this be? This defies logic. This defies biology, the laws of nature. We have so many questions and we don't have answers to those questions. And we dare not let ourselves believe until we have all of our questions answered. And so Jesus is, he's seeing them struggle to believe. And he has every reason to rebuke them without mercy for still not believing 
in the face of so much evidence. But Jesus is a patient savior and he's persistent like we should be. Look at what he does in verse 41. This is amazing. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Some manuscripts add the words and honey from a honeycomb. And he took it and ate it before them. Normally it's not polite to stare at someone, right? (laughs) When they're eating. But everyone in the room is watching Jesus as he's putting food in his mouth, chewing that food and then swallowing and they're watching his Adam's apple move. This is Jesus going to every length and making every effort to revive his followers' shattered faith in him and persuade them that he truly, in the flesh, has been raised from the dead. But he does more than this, even. The disciples need more than external evidence. They need an internal miracle. And that's really the problem. So after Jesus eats the fish, he does a seventh and final thing to revive the shattered faith of those who had lost hope in him. Number seven, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures concerning himself. Look at what Jesus does in verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was with you, while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice that word must again. This is the language of necessity. Jesus here is pointing them to words, his own words that he had spoken prior and the words of scripture, which predicted the suffering and the death and the resurrection of the Messiah as part of the necessary sovereign plan of God. But he does more than that. He performs a miracle in their minds. Look at what happens in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is the miracle that they all needed. And all of a sudden, it all makes sense and they get it. One of the things that I think I learn here as a counselor is the fact that Jesus has to perform this final miracle of opening their mind shows us that evidence alone is never enough. You can give overwhelming evidence to someone of the truth about Christ, the truth about Christianity, but the only way they're ever going to really believe is if God does a miracle of touching their mind and opening their mind to understand and believe. This is the miracle all of us need. That's the only reason any of us have believed. Not because we're smarter than other people um, and we were more scientific in the way that we examined the evidence No, the only reason we believed is because Jesus opened our mind to see and believe. This is the miracle that every wayward, shattered soul needs. And this is why one of the things we need to do is, yes, we present Christ and we present the evidence to them of the truth of Christianity. But we pray to God, asking God to do the miracle in their heart and mind that only he can do. After opening their minds, Jesus speaks to them 
and now they really have a mind to comprehend what he's saying. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written, again, pointing to the scriptures, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. What he's saying is, guys, it was God's plan that I suffer and that I die. And it was God's plan that you experience the pain that you have experienced and the unfolding of all of that. It was God's plan that we all suffer the way that we've suffered over the last few days. But it was also God's plan that I be raised to life and that this joy now be yours and that you be witnesses of these things and now proclaim the truth about me to all of the nations. And the message that can now be proclaimed is that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is available in my name. To make a long story short, we get some idea of the disciples' reaction at the end of the chapter where we learn in verse 52 that they experience great joy. Verse 53, they were continually praising God through the loving and through the faithful, patient ministry of Christ to them, they've been brought successfully to a place where they're daring to believe and rejoice again, only now with a larger and a richer and more informed faith than what they had before. It turns out that the worst thing that ever happened to them, the most painful and disappointing, shattering experience of their lives was a part of God's plan to show the power of Christ to triumph over evil and to bring salvation to the nations. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we now know that evil does not have the last word. The evils we do and the evils that others commit against us do not have to have the last word. Jesus has the last word, and we can be swept up into the experience of that if we believe in Jesus. I think you guys at the end of your notes have just a few additional takeaways. Let me go through those very quickly. In addition to the things we've, we've already learned as we've just worked through this chapter, I think we do observe in this chapter that sometimes genuinely elect people do experience devastating circumstances that leave them in a state of disappointed hope, foolishness, and slowness of heart to believe the scriptures. Luke 24 shows us that it is possible for some who are of the elect to experience this kind of crisis of faith. And some of them may look and sound like full-on prodigals in their waywardness and loss of hope. Second thing we observe is that um, and I love this, this should encourage all of us. Evidently, the Christian faith through the person and work of Christ and the Holy Scriptures has the stuff that's needed to resurrect someone's shattered faith. Never was anyone's faith more shattered than these early followers of Jesus, and yet their faith was completely resurrected and taken to heights that they never had dreamed possible. And a chapter like this reminds us, guys, that as Christians... As Christian counselors, we got the best story. We got the best savior. We've got the goods that no other practitioner of any other religion has to offer to hurting 
and shattered people. We have the best Messiah who has suffered more than any other person, yet who was raised from the dead and comes to people in their own brokenness and their suffering, and he offers himself to them as a friend and as the answer they're looking for. I think number three in your notes, we should also learn from this chapter that ministering to prodigals, ministering to those that are wayward and have had a shattered faith takes time and patience and a willingness on our part to engage. We need to be as patient as Jesus was. We're not going to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished with just one sit down with a person whose faith is shattered. We need to be willing to invest the time and engage with them in a way that cooperates with the work of God in them little by little. And we need to be willing to physically show up like Jesus does. And even as I say that, just think about a wayward person in your life that God has put on your heart. How can you physically show up in their life the way that Jesus does? I, we're just kind of scratching the surface of this chapter. I would encourage you guys to really think through this chapter pretty carefully and just draw additional insights from it. But one of the things that does hit me from this chapter is that we need to have a, a well thought out and robust theology of suffering if we want to be effective in ministering to hurting people. Life is suffering and it is inevitable that people are going to find themselves on the receiving end of evils that are committed in a fallen world. I don't know why God allows what he allows. I don't have all the answers. I don't know fully why God allowed Jesse Golem to be sexually assaulted in Vancouver, Canada when she visited her friend. I grieved when I read her article in the Huffington Post last year and I was able to actually reach out to her and, and just thank her for telling her story and to tell her I'm so sorry for what happened to you. And she was kind enough to reply, I don't have all the answers, but the best answer that any of us have to the question of the problem of suffering and the problem of evil is a Messiah who has suffered more than any of us, yet who triumphed through his suffering. And he can bring people into that triumph. And he is the one that we have to offer to those who go astray. After witnessing the carnage of World War I, uh, Edward Shalito found comfort in gazing upon Christ who sits on the throne of heaven and a Christ who arrived at that throne by becoming a fellow sufferer with us first. And the last stanza of his poem goes like this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And I think that's why when Jesus stood before his shattered followers, 
he presented his hands and his feet to them, which bore the scars of his suffering. That's the Savior God gives to wounded souls in a fallen, broken world. And I pray that God will just help all of us um, as we give this Savior to those that we're counseling. Can I pray for all of us that God will help us to do that? Lord, there's a lot of directions we could have gone in this workshop. Um, practical how-tos and all of that would have been immensely valuable. But there's just nothing better than watching Jesus and the way he works with such wisdom, with such skill, with such patience. physically showing up patient with those who are slow of heart to believe yet also speaking truth to them and calling them on their slowness of heart presenting them every evidence they need and when they still could not believe he opens their minds and does the inward miracle that they most needed. We thank you, Lord, for doing this to us who now know you. And as we minister to people in our churches, Lord, I know as a pastor of 26 years that some people just go off into sin because they love sin. Some people go astray because they've been wounded and they have suffered they've been exploited, they've been violated, and they do not in that moment have the wherewithal to process that in a way that is befitting to faith. And help us, Lord, as counselors and as brothers and sisters to know how to reach out to such people and to see them as more than prodigals but as hurting souls who need someone who's willing to travel with them, to walk a road with them, and to ask them, what are you thinking? What are you talking about? Tell me your story. And we thank you for all the ways you just show us how to do this in this amazing chapter. Help us, Lord, to do these things in your name and for your glory. We ask this in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Thanks, you guys. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.